Whoa, sorry. I'm just absent-minded. They ended up feeling my bicep because um, I've been trying to train my arms lately and I've got... My arms are coming in well. This is nice. So it's a couple of days later from getting that phone call telling me that I have initially tested positive for HIV and I've just finished a three hour doctor's appointment um, at what was my first HIV specialist clinic. Um, I've since moved cities so I've moved to a new clinic. Um, and I've been through the ringer. Um, I initially saw uh, a really, really nice lady who gave me another HIV test in person, um, part for them and part for my peace of mind, I think, so that I could see the results kind of in front of me physically and have it confirmed that I do actually have HIV. And then I'm uh, taken to a doctor's office and I meet my doctor, um, who is, by the way, one of the nicest people I have ever met in my life genuinely could not have asked for a more wonderful medical beginning to this journey. Um, the entire team at the clinic were just absolutely uh, blew me away every single time. Um, it was the Heartlands Clinic in Birmingham. Every single time that I had any question or had any worry or had any doubt or needed an STI test or anything like that, they sorted me out with whatever I needed. Um, and it truly did make it made this journey so much easier having a place of support. They were wonderful. Um, really wonderful and especially because not a lot of people in my actual life if any at that at the very beginning had any knowledge of HIV or that I was living with HIV um it was really nice to have that rock solid foundation for my journey living with HIV um in that initial appointment I went through a pharmacist a psychiatrist a dietitian um I really had all my base is covered and had access to all the information that I possibly needed. Obviously, um, I've been just out of hospital recently and, you know, my diet was something that to be addressed and looked at and I needed to kind of get back to my usual fit self. So recovery was a big thing. Um, and, you know, having a fucking dietitian there was incredible, incredible. Um, it's worth noting as well that HIV doesn't actually affect my body in any way now, um, nor did it particularly aside from the zero conversion in terms of damaging my immune system long term because HIV was picked up so quickly on and I was diagnosed so soon after transmission. My medication, which I literally left with my first six months with from this doctor's appointment, um, back shortly, a very short, two days after finding out I had HIV, um, made sure that my, you know, virus levels were subdued incredibly early on. And so I could not transmit HIV, nor could it actually affect my health in any way. It was, it's like Pandora's box is the way that I describe them with HIV because everything that's inside me is unable to actually do anything to me or to anybody else. Um, you know, it's a really, it's a really strange thing. And it's a miracle really, simply by taking two pills a day that I am physically unable to transmit HIV, no matter, you know, whatever position I was to have sex in or however I was to have sex. You know, it's a really reassuring thing. And like I very briefly touched upon in episode one, that was a strange thing, a, a very strange thing. Um, 
Oh, by the way, this is the What Happens Next podcast, uh, episode two. Uh, I am your host, Jay Hawkridge. Hello, thanks for tuning in. And we are in association with iPlaySafe. iPlaySafe are a secure and verified way to test and then share your STI status with partners in the future. Once ordered, you'll receive your iPlaySafe testing kit discreetly packaged to you in the mail. After collecting your samples, you can send it away for quick and accurate processing with results that you can track through the app. Go to iPlaySafe.app for more info. Like I very briefly touched upon in episode one, that was a strange thing, a very strange thing um, to to discuss the first you know instances in which I was having sex and I was undetectable and my partners were trusting in me to, you know, be undetectable. Um, yeah, it's it's a really strange thing. But basically, obviously, the first thing I do pretty much after having another little mini breakdown when I get outside of this doctor's appointment is go, right, this is real. My life's changed. This is it. There's no going back. Um, I need to get in contact with this guy because at the time, you know, I was just confused, okay? I'd messaged this guy a couple of times, the one that I'd seen and that had transmitted me HIV. Um, and I'd been like, bro, can we meet up again for a coffee? Just trying to keep it casual so that I could actually have a conversation with him about this because I knew from my end there was zero risk of me getting HIV from any other partners. Um, there was only one place that it could have come from and it was this guy that I slept with. And so I was just baffled because... Like I said, I had no knowledge of HIV prior to this and I'd, you know, taken him at his word that he was safe to have sex with and wasn't going to transmit me anything. Um, so I tried over like, the first couple of months, actually, um, of my post-diagnosis journey to actually arrange a chat with him. Um, and he kept bailing. And I assume he kept bailing because, you know, he knew that he had HIV and he knew what this chat was going to be about because the timelines were a month and a half after seeing him. All of a sudden, ding dong, Jay Hawks wants to chat. Um, but he kind of toyed me along for a while bit. And then kind of every time we were going to meet up for coffee, there was some story that just conveniently got him out of it. Like he had apartment issues or a friend needed him or he just wasn't sure of what I wanted from this coffee. And looking back, it was all really manipulative and really guilt, guilt-ridden. It was full of guilt. Um, but I was confused as fuck, and my headspace was in not in a good space of time at all, at all. It was a really difficult time. Like, adjusting to my medication, I'm absolutely sound with side effects now. And in all honesty, I think my side effects were caused by my mental health. Um, at the time, but I had really bad insomnia when I first started taking my medication for the first two or three months, and I just found myself awake till 6am, if not longer, every single night. I couldn't sleep. It ruined my life. Like I said, I had to quit my career um, and take some time off work to recover because I was physically and mentally just not here, not here. I had no energy for anything at all. It took all my energy just to even get out of bed. Um, and I really started to have the first of a series of identity crises because it's it's a very difficult thing to adjust to when you feel like you're kind of going through it emotionally alone. And, you know, the medical staff and the clinic team were amazing to support me when I was there. But in my in my actual life, I was very, very reluctant to to bring HIV into, into conversation and to let people know that I had it. You know, it was something that was so new and scary to me. And so the idea that I was bringing other people that 
I cared, whose opinions I cared about and whose, whose opinions mattered to me. The idea that I would bring them in this journey and they could perceive me differently or wrongly or not, you know, see me the same anymore was terrifying because I'd already just lost so much and I was losing so much of myself that I couldn't really it wasn't worth it weighing up the risk of me to lose someone else along that journey. Um, and so I kept it mainly to myself. Um, my initial, um, you know, diagnosis and kind of when I was going through it at the time um, was something that for me, it just felt better um, to go through. And I think this is where a lot of my trust issues have stemmed from um in the last couple of years is that the people that I initially opened up to before becoming public family aside I didn't I didn't tell my family for a few months but the the small selection of people that I did choose to share my status with in the early days didn't necessarily give me the support that I felt like I would be able to give back in that situation and didn't really see me the way that I expected that they would see me. Um, all decided that I was, you know, too much to deal with and that this was my issue and nobody else's responsibility, which is true, but, you know, friendship is friendship. Um, and it just wasn't a very welcoming environment for me to feel like I could open up to new people, um, given the early experiences of opening up to people, um, and how that went. And so I was left feeling quite isolated and I was left feeling quite ashamed. I remember feeling so ashamed, man, um, that I'd done this to myself. Um, and, you know, with that shame came guilt and anger, but anger towards myself because I felt like I was to blame. And, you know, there was any one person who agreed to have no condom sex. And that was me. If I didn't want to do it, I shouldn't have. But I did want to, so I did. And therefore... It's my fault that I have HIV is the kind of initial, initial, initial idea and thought that was passed along and told to me. Um, and so I inherently took that at face value because, you know, it came from trusted sources um, or people that I trusted at the time. Um, and so it was very easy to get wrapped up into a false, a false narrative of what was actually going on. In reality, all I'd done is had a one-night stand and trusted in my partner to not give me a lifelong, serious, potentially fatal virus, um, which is what most people do and expect of a partner, I think, when they when they sleep with someone, you know. Um, few people, if any, are ever 100% sure of their partner's STI status before they engage in any sexual activity with them, um, I think is a really important point to make. And that will 
become something that was a lifeline to me when I joined TikTok and I suddenly had not one, but thousands of people telling me um, that I'd done this to myself and that I was to blame and that it was all my fault and that I was deserving of it. Um, that one always stings when people tell me that I deserve it. Um, but yeah, so back to this, uh, back to the first couple of months uh, post-diagnosis and it just wasn't just wasn't amazing. I was really struggling. I was really struggling. Um, I wasn't feeling myself. I wasn't particularly feeling like I had any routine or sense of actual, you know, the life that I'd had before went overnight. I was weak. I was frail. I couldn't go out. I couldn't drink. I couldn't go to the gym. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything fun um, or normal that I was used to. I couldn't eat properly. I couldn't drink actual like non-alcoholic drinks I couldn't be hydrated properly everything was a mess it was a mess I was so ill um and then eventually when I got a little bit better I started trying to go to the gym and doing a little bit of cardio a couple times a week um and then you know the whole winter rave season kicked in um and what is a boy to do um when he doesn't feel at home anywhere but head to the rave <laughs> because if there's one place you're gonna feel at home it's on a dance floor surrounded by people who never met you before don't know who you are and just want to have a fucking good time so i will admit that i started going raving more often than i normally did before and more often than i probably should be um and like i said you know this was purely to cover up the fact that i i felt I felt lost and I just wanted to find a home somewhere and being so invisible on that dance floor was everything that I needed it to be. You know, it was a real sense of community. People loved me and wanted to talk to me when I was there. I always had a great night. I And I left and there was no inclination for anything to be more than surface level because these people didn't know who I am. They didn't have my socials. They didn't... You know, there was no reputation of me at the time. There was, I could just flit in and out of it whenever I wanted into this parallel universe and just be, and just let all of my problems go, which I think is the, is the pinnacle of what rave culture is all about. It's about allowing yourself to just be free. And this was the first time that I really discovered my own relationship with rave culture. I'd been going out with a group of friends who'd included me into their idea of rave culture um and brought me into the world um and this was the first time that i actually started to really enjoy it on my own level and see it through my own eyes for my own reasons you know i wasn't just going to see my mates i was going because i was getting something very personal out of it that nobody else could tell that i was getting out of it and that really led to an increased love in dance music um which i didn't think i could have more of um you know i have been into music since i was a kid um very much into dance music since i was a kid um you know and a big reason why i was become a music journalist and i was a music journalist until until hiv came um because that was my first love and to be finding a new appreciation and love for music was a wonderful sidestep to this story. It really was. I didn't expect to find anything that resembled anything like familiarity. And to be able to find 
a deeper meaning to music really kept me going those few months and I think that's why I kept going back because music meant something new and I thought I was always going to know what music meant to me and I thought I'd figured it out my relationship with music and then all of a sudden it became so much more of a lifeline than I realised. Unfortunately, as much as music is the answer, um, it couldn't it couldn't solve everything. And over time and over the next few months, I really found myself slowly unraveling. Slowly, very slowly, but I was unraveling. And it got to a point where something had to give and it was either going to be the lifestyle and the daily routine that I found myself in or it was going to be me. Um, you know, it was really tough, really tough to fall back into everything that I'd been doing beforehand. And I found that I couldn't fall back into everything that I'd been doing beforehand. You know, up until this point, I had been grafting 40, 50 hour weeks, um, working in restaurants to try and be a full, proper music journalist, which, as you will know, if you have any industry experience in creative arts, is a really difficult thing to do because you are expected to just give your time and effort out. Um, and so you really have to struggle for a few years as any kind of artist. And I was in my struggling artist era and I was having some, you know, commercial success, I guess. And I was doing some things that I was really proud of, but I wasn't getting the, I wasn't getting the actual, you know, real world kind of benefits of that. It was still very much, I was expected to be grateful that I was being given these opportunities. Um, and that that adds a very strange sense of illusion to your self-worth when people want you and admire you and, you know, want your craft, but want it on their terms because it's not worth enough on your terms. Um, you know, if there's no mutual respect in those boundaries, um, it gets it gets difficult. Um, and so I was really at an impasse because I didn't want to go back to my old life of crafting so long, so long, working a job that I didn't want to work whilst also doing the stuff that I wanted to do, but for free. <laughs> um, and so this coincided with a really strange time in the world. This was the beginning of February where everything was starting to kick off with COVID in 2020. Um, you know, there were whispers um, all Christmas about what was happening across other parts of the world with it. Um, by February, it was starting to creep up and be a little bit of a threat. And I found myself in a bit of predicament where I didn't really know where the next step was. And it wasn't that I didn't know where the next step was. And, you know, that was exciting and it was challenging and it was, oh my gosh, I could go anywhere it really felt like I'd come to the end of the road. You know, I myself had found myself shutting down emotionally these last few months, dealing with my my HIV journey. I was taking my medication. I was going to my appointments. I was looking after myself. I was eating, drinking. I was back at the gym, lifting some weights. But mentally, I was checked out. And I had been checked out since I got that, that phone call. I think I still hadn't returned. And it was a very easy decision to decide that I was going to end my life um, in uh, in the early parts of 2020. Now, it's something that I wrestled with for a while. And I say wrestled with only because 
I I say wrestled with only because only because it was more out of duty for other people than it was me not wanting to commit suicide. Um, I was worried that other people were going to miss me. <laughs> um, and I was worried that other people were going to be put through pain and that whilst my pain was going to end, that other people would have to deal with the aftermath, which is the very thing that I was trying to avoid with the decision of killing myself, is what I've come to learn, is that I was going through so much pain and feeling so lonely and so lost that I knew that by killing myself, all that was going to end for me and I would find peace. But I would be transferring all that pain and all of that sense of loss and all of that confusion and anger tenfold to the people around me because I was still aware that people loved me and supported me. And so that was a really tough thing for me to wrestle with for a couple of months. And I ended up settling on the decision that I was going to commit suicide. I decided that this was it and that I should do this now. Um, and I remember the day as clear as day. I was in Liverpool um, and I was seeing someone for the day. Um, and I came back on the train and it was on the train from Liverpool to Birmingham that this really settled in that tonight was the night. And I cried, right, the entire journey back. And I don't mean like I shed a tear. I was on a crowded commuting train, bawling my eyes out, trying to just hide it, which didn't work, obviously. And there was this poor young lady sat next to me who just must have been frightened to death at the thought of what I was going through because I was a mess. Um, I was a mess. And it's because I was going through so much grief of understanding and starting to feel what the people around me were going to be feeling. And I was starting to feel guilty and I was starting to feel like I'd lost a battle, like I'd really lost a battle that I had been fighting for so long at this point, every day since my diagnosis had become a fight, a fight for me to find myself, a fight for me to feel better, a fight for me to struggle on and rebuild what I felt like I'd lost, a fight for me to not feel angry, a fight for me to find out the truth, a fight that was leading nowhere. And I felt like I'd lost and there's only one thing left to do and that was just to wave the white flag and surrender and give up. So I get back to Birmingham and I end up having a conversation with a friend in real life about this. Um, and I'm sat there on the floor, right? And I'm crying, obviously, because I just have not been able to stop. And I'm just like, tonight is the night. Um, and I say, I'm, I'm going to kill myself tonight. I'm done. And I understand that's a lot to put on someone. Um, and I wouldn't have said it to anybody else in my life at that time. That was the one point of call that I, I truly felt like I could go to without being a burden, you know? Um, and this person looked me in the eye and they said, okay, 
I hear you. I'm going to go to the cinema. I'll be back later. And they went to the cinema. And I sat there on the floor in the exact same spot, the exact same spot, until they came back. And when they came back, um, let themselves in with a key. Um, when they came back, they said, oh my God, I could not enjoy that film at all because I was terrified that you were out here killing yourself. And at this point, at this point, I had rang my mum because I realised that I hadn't told my mum that I had HIV. I didn't go home for my birthday. I didn't go home for my mum's birthday. I didn't go home for Christmas. I didn't go home for any other family occasions in between diagnosis and the end of February. And I was like, oh God, she's going to find out from someone else. At this point, um, I had like a load of notes and things that I want to say in my notes app that I knew would be accessed when someone accessed my phone afterwards. So kind of all those bases were covered. It's not that I had no way of communicating and saying what I needed to say and just letting her know what I wanted her to know. Um, but I was like, fuck, she, she's going to find out from someone else. That's a bit rude. Um, so I rang my mom and I was like, just need you to know something before, before I do something. <laughs> um, oh man. And I just told her I had HIV and she gave me about an hour and a half of just crying down the phone and questions and what does this mean and are you going to die and how long do you have left and all of this and I, my mum saved my life that night, right? And I've always been my mum's my biggest fan. I've always been the biggest fan of my mum. She is without a doubt my mum, do you know what I mean? Um... But even even for a, for someone's mom, she's a fucking mom, um, and she still probably won't, she'll never understand how much that phone call meant to me because that was the moment where I started to find myself again a little bit. Um, basically. It was her worrying and her being so upset and scared for me that enabled me to step into actually giving her the lowdown of what HIV actually meant and being like, oh, well, it's not that bad. I'm not going to be killed by it. It's not going to affect my health. I'm going to live a happy, healthy life. I could still have kids, not that I ever want to, but I was like, I could still have kids that wouldn't have HIV naturally. Um... And I just explained all the medical terms and explained, you know, the past couple of months and that I was actually doing all right and that I was back at the gym and I was working out and I was feeling a little bit healthier. Um, And then at the end of it, I was just like... I said that I'd come home at the weekend because I hadn't been home in months. I hadn't been home in... I hadn't been home in months and I missed home, obviously. And I'd missed, like I said, so many big occasions because of not wanting to go home and have it be 
the Christmas that Jay told us all we had HIV and then Christmas forever be associated with that. And I didn't want to tell her on her birthday. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I didn't want to tell her on my birthday. Um, not that I'm a massive fan of like any holidays, but I also I didn't want them to have any extra meaning that they didn't need to have. And so I put the phone down and promised that I would come home and talk to her about it. Um, and that that promise meant that I couldn't kill myself that night because I like to keep my word um, as best I can. Um, and I knew that she needed to see me and I knew that I needed to see her. And I knew that that was the end to a lot of suffering. That was the end to a lot of feeling isolated. That was the end to a lot of heartache. I'd been cocooning myself and worrying so much that that I was alone when in reality I'd never been alone I'd never been alone and you know luckily 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 um luckily the covid pandemic happened albeit a couple of weeks later we went into lockdown um, which was the best thing that could have happened to me at that moment. 